are tuned in to another installment of the Aptivate podcast. I'm Tommy, as you likely know by now. Today I have a tremendous, fantastic, awesome guest on the line, Rockford Yap, who is currently Director of Growth Marketing at Tilting Point. Rockford, how's it going? Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Tommy. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. It's awesome having you, man. This has been a long time coming, I think. So really excited to chat with you today. Rockford, I'm obviously familiar with you and we go back not a super long ways, but enough of a ways where I have a a general sense of your background. But obviously not everyone who's listening does. I would love to kind of set the table a little bit. And if you could tell us about yourself, where you come from, where you've been, anything like that, your deepest, darkest secrets, if you so desire to tell us. If you could just, yeah, give us that little preface, then we can kind of dive in. Yeah, sure. So I guess my first sort of like exposure to advertising or like performance advertising, I guess that that interest was kind of sparked in college when I was studying advertising. I'd kind of transferred majors away from economics just because I kind of saw like the whole academia route that a lot of economists go down and everything decided it wasn't really for me, but... And it's boring. Yeah, and it's boring as hell, yeah. So, <laughs> but for some reason, like advertising jumped at me just because it is kind of like interesting to connect with people on kind of a mass scale like that. And this was graduated college in 2009, which was kind of when digital marketing was first becoming a thing and people were really starting to put a lot of interesting sort of like direct response metrics around like digital marketing and whatnot. So I've been interested in digital marketing since I was still in school and everything, decided that's really what I wanted to do. But graduating college in the height of the sort of financial downturn of 2008 was leaving me with few options. So you kind of had to just to get out into the workforce wherever I could. Ended up working in sales for a little bit before I ended up getting into a my first big technology company uh, was at Grubhub in Chicago. So I was doing some account management for them, uh, revenue optimization between restaurants for like a book of restaurants in the San Francisco Bay area. So I got to actually finally put some of my like analytical skills and advertising skills to use there for restaurants in the early days of Grubhub. So that kind of gave me a lot of experience in terms of like, how do we modify delivery radiuses to increase like order volume for Chinese restaurants in the South Bay or something, or like how do we increase average order size for this restaurant in order for them to get more exposure on the platform and things like that. So a lot of like my like data analysis and just kind of like performance metrics baselines were actually set in that job, which was interesting stuff. But how did you, sorry to interrupt you in the middle of your your history, but it's, it's interesting to me, right? That you studied advertising in college, Did that degree or did that focus teach you the skills that were necessary to have that kind of data analyst background for something like CrowdHub? Or was that something that you learned separately? Or was that something that you learned when you're studying economics or maybe everything? Yeah, I feel like honestly, most of like the foundation of it was kind of in that economics background. I mean, like the advertising curriculum was really more about like creative and how do you connect with people on like a psychological level and, and things like that, which is obviously important, but I mean, like, it doesn't really, I wasn't really schooled in, like, how to measure, like, click-through rates or things like that in college, right? So, like, a lot of that stuff was rooted in 
my economics background, but didn't really get to put a lot of it to use until I was at Grubhub when we had all of this like really rich data to play with and like how people were interacting with our platform and like what really made certain restaurants stand out from others, even though they had like similar menu items and delivery rates and things like that. So like, I feel like I built a lot of that kind of like interest and mindset studying economics, but didn't really have a platform to put it to use until I got to Grubhub and we just had this kind of like crazy amount of data to play with and make those analyses. So a little of both, but I feel like obviously you don't really get that same level of like expertise without doing it, right? So I feel like like at Grubhub is where I was able to kind of like sharpen those skills and really kind of like use that role to figure out one, was I even like good at this or was it just something I was interested in or two, like, is this a useful thing that I can carry on into another field or is this something that's even valuable in digital marketing, right? So yeah, so like after I got to do that at Grubhub for a while, like and that was still a bit of a stretch from like proper digital marketing as you and I know it, right? So I knew in my next job, that's really what I wanted to be doing. So after searching for a while and deciding I didn't really want to be in Chicago anymore, I found myself in Colorado working for Ad Action Interactive, which was my first real exposure to like the mobile industry, right? It seems like a really good kind of combination of like campaign strategy, data analytics, like relationship skills, like everything that really is kind of essential for like UA and performance marketing. So that was my first exposure to like actual campaign management and actually doing all of the same sort of stuff on for like legit like media buying, right? So after a couple of months at Ad Action, I realized, yeah, this is what I want to be doing, really doubled down and tried to sharpen my skills there with in terms of like data analysis, learning things like SQL and taking data analysis courses, e-learnings on marketing, best practices, things like that, just because it wasn't something that I got a lot in my training at previous jobs. So I really tried to just better myself there and improve my skills throughout my time at Ad Action, And over time, just kind of helped build out what does campaign strategy look like for travel apps versus gaming apps versus lifestyle apps, whatever it may be, right? And just understanding how to apply all of those different things to the mobile app ecosystem. Because like when we started at Ad Action, it was like things like chart bursting was still like a super viable strategy, right? Yeah, free my apps with Fixer. I was an old Fixer guy and that was like a huge part of their business was just absolutely crushing incentivized installs to climb charts. Yeah, exactly. That strategy doesn't really it doesn't really work so well. Nowadays, but yeah, back then it was literally wild west. Everybody was just trying to figure out how to crack this whole app store thing and really stand out. So, in addition to kind of doing all of these fun things that I wanted to do with like campaign strategy and analytics and everything, you still had that kind of like fresh, kind of like everything's new, everything's changing. There was a new channel or way to drive installs or performance every day, and I was just I was hooked at that point, really. So. But yeah, I ended up spending a few years at Ad Action. decided that I wanted to get a little bit more ingrained in the gaming world and get into the nuts and bolts of like what really makes games grow and came across this, this opportunity at Tilting Point a little over six months ago and have been doing the same thing here ever since. So, yeah. So for those of us who are listening to this podcast and, and aren't as familiar with Tilting Point, because I don't necessarily see them as like your traditional game development studio, like something like King, right? I believe your model is different. Could you just educate us a little bit on how Tilting Point functions and how the business runs? Yeah, 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 definitely. So Tilting Point is a mobile games publisher, and that's kind of an important distinction from your Kings or whatever who are game developers. So we don't actually make any of our own games in-house. 
what Tilting Point basically does is go out into the market and evaluates live games that have a solid product, they're a good game, maybe a small studio that doesn't really understand the business side of, or have the same expertise on the business side of running a game. So our whole value proposition is let us worry about user acquisition, monetization, live ops, that the whole business side of the thing, and you guys take care of making a great game and just continue doing what you're doing. So yeah, the model that we kind of use is basically we'll evaluate games, obviously, that want to go into a publishing relationship with us, but it's kind of a long journey there. Like We want to make sure that we're working with the best game developers out there and not just picking up any old game off the street just so that we can throw ads in it or in purchases and start making money, right? So the way the business model works is, like I said, we'll find a solid team of game developers that love making games, know how to make a good game. We offer our services in terms of user acquisition, live operations, ad monetization, revenue management, and all of that sort of fun stuff. And then we also will fund our growth initiatives with you. So instead of saying like, hey, we're just going to invoice you for whatever we spend on UA this month, we're going to fund all of that media buying, and then we're going to recoup our investment fees and everything off of the game's profitability. So the developers we work with really don't put really any risk on the table. Like we're taking on the risk because we're confident that we're going to be able to run ROI positive campaigns and help you improve the monetization and metrics of your games while scaling UA in a profitable way. And growing the app in a big way in order to cover those expenses and everything. That's really cool. Now you brought up something there that's actually kind of interesting. And I don't want to spend too, too, too much time talking about just tilting point on its own. But I guess one of the questions I have is like you work in UA, you have a long experience in it. And I guess I would imagine by this point, you and your team are able to identify when an app has a good growth trajectory, right? How much of kind of the expertise from your UA team at Tilting Point goes into identifying new app opportunities? Is there a vetting process you guys take the new apps that you're looking to onboard through? And is that something that the UA team is involved with? Or is it a whole separate team that goes through that onboarding? So it all flows through UA. So UA is like the really the entry point for all like new partnerships that we have at Tilting Point. So if our business development team identifies a good game and they're interested in our services, they'll get kicked over to my team to run like a quick, like small, like $500 test or something like that, just to evaluate like one, like what do the CPIs look like in this game? What are the like purchase conversion rates like? What does retention look like over the short term, right? And just make sure that this core sort of KPIs that you know that you need to run a good UA campaign on it are there, right? And then if it passes those tests, then we'll advance them onto the next point of evaluation, which is usually like a shorter term partnership, but we'll spend a little bit more money, maybe like twenty, forty thousand dollars on a campaign, just to ensure that like all the assumptions that we made from that smaller test are correct and scalable and wasn't just a product of being like a super small gut check, right? So after we go through that level of evaluation, then we'll start talking about longer term partnerships. What does the rev share agreement look like? Are we going to be providing you with creatives from our art and video team? Or do you guys have a team in house that does that? Do you guys have people that manage your live ops and add monetization? Or is that something that we would take on for you? But UA is, is the entry point for all of these things. Like if we run through these things and we can't make UA profitable or can't make the metrics profitable enough, then we know it's probably not exploring these other options, right? Totally. That's super interesting. It's like a kind of like a crawl, walk, run strategy you guys implement to onboard these new partners. And it's great, man. I mean, overall, it sounds like you've been, I think it's safe to say, 
involved with in a big way, user acquisition for five plus, potentially six years now. Is that more or less accurate? Yeah, that's about right. Been a wild ride for the five or six years. Yeah, and that's the thing, right? Like when you look, so we're looking back then all the way to 2000, what? 14, I think. 13, 14, right? Ton has changed then, and you've seen it from a number of angles. And I think one of the interesting vantage points you have, right, is you have never been siloed to a single title necessarily, right? You didn't work just at one studio, right? You've worked at a publisher and then you worked at at Action, which I think we might classify as like, I don't know, maybe a network hybrid of some sort. Yeah, I mean, uh, nowadays Ad Action has a bunch of different services that they offer, but at the time, yeah, an ad network. So you've been involved with tons and tons of games and just apps in various verticals. So I guess the first question I'd have, it kind of revolves around like, is there a common theme or vein that runs through all these years of work where you've seen quite a development in one particular like kind of area in this industry, be it, yeah, actually, no, that's it. Like, is there something that you've seen change kind of dramatically throughout the last four or five years? Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of things, but I think the things that have changed probably most dramatically are just kind of like the way that people are are growing their apps or their games, right? I feel like Facebook and Google have kind of always been like the core players. But I mean, back when I started, like, yeah, there was Facebook and Google, but there were also like a 100 other ad networks out there or more even that were driving what at the time was deemed legitimate ways to grow your game. We talked about bursting a little bit, but I mean, that used to be a super viable strategy for new apps. But like that's really changed over time to really be around less about just like, what can I get my cost to install to be? How can I remain 101% ROA so that I can continue investing in this game, right? So I think a lot of things have changed over time in terms of like how people conduct campaigns and what metrics are important and what aren't. But with all of that change, it's just been like really weird seeing how people have tried to game the system in different sort of ways, right? Whether they're manipulating users into clicking on an ad instead of clicking on the X in the corner or all of these things that have just kind of happened with fraud over the years with like click injection and spamming and like running bot farms and things like that. And finally seeing a lot of these like bad behaviors that used to be so prevalent, getting really weeded out of the system through better technology and through new best practices and things that just like weren't really available to a lot of marketers back in the day. Yeah, totally. So I guess to that end, what kind of strategies have you learned and implemented or are there certain data points you look for when you're running a campaign that allow you to say, this is click injection, this is click fraud, this is bot users. Are there things that you have in place now or are there certain insights that you've gained over the years that you allow you to see this pretty quickly or is it still kind of a mystery in some ways how it happens? Well, I think like nowadays what's interesting about it now is that like as soon as you're at a point where you need to grow outside of Facebook and Google, it's pretty easy to know like what are the next steps and like what are kind of the more experimental things so i think there are still some like core channels out there that are deemed quote unquote safe but kind of the metrics that you have to look for whenever you're testing or experimenting with new channels is as it relates to fraud especially are like a lot of things that most attribution platforms take care of for you now so it's like are there like abnormalities in like click to install times are we seeing like users install an app between zero and two seconds after a click was made right just things that are clearly impossible? Or is there like a really long click to install average where people aren't on average installing a game until like four or five, six days later, right? Where people are just shoving clicks in there to see what's going to take. So I think a lot of these things that are like really obvious nowadays and a lot of things that like most attribution platforms or analytics platforms just like have built in nowadays are pretty 
core and common, but I mean, like we have a data science team as well that is super strong and takes a lot of different things into consideration, right? So like understanding the differences between like creatives that are being pushed out there. It's like we generally have like a pretty good baseline of what what sort of behavior a certain creative is going to be driving in terms of like click-through rates and conversion rates and things like that, right? So we know that if like channel A is driving way different metrics than channel B in terms of the exact same creative and the exact same experience, we have systems in place now that'll flag that kind of behavior and let us know that we need to dig in a little bit deeper and things like that. But I think like a lot of the core KPIs, like click to install time, like click to install ratios and and things like that, and like verifying IP addresses and whether they're from bot forms or real users or things like that are pretty well established nowadays. Would you say that in addition to that, you know, because when I think back to 2014 or 2013 or whatever, right, I think, okay, what were the core KPIs we were leveraging at that time to determine the success of a campaign? And generally speaking, when it came to apps, it was CPI, right? And it didn't often go much further than that at the time because we weren't necessarily capable of tracking ROAS or tracking even like post-install activities. Some apps just didn't have that bill done and some MMPs weren't providing it yet, right? Yeah. To that end, do you think that the shift in KPIs and, and saying when we look today, now we use ROAS, CPA, and ideally in my mind, right, incrementality as our core determinants of efficacy. Do you think that's also made it so that we're in a safer place when it comes to fraud? Yeah, I definitely think we are in a much safer place now because like you were saying, like back when the core KPI was like CPI, it's like CPI is meaningless. There are a million ways that you can drive an install. But I mean, like what really matters at the end of the day is one is the, are the installs that you're driving incremental or are you just stealing them from your organic traffic or your Facebook traffic or whatever, right? So that incrementality piece is super important. And then also just in terms of like the metrics that we're looking at, like CPI doesn't matter, but ROAS is obviously the most important for any business. It's like money in versus money out. So nowadays people don't care if you have to spend $20 on an install as long as that install is giving you $21 back, right? And that sort of traffic is just still valuable, right? But I mean, like asking somebody to pay $20 for an install in 2014 was like, insane because there were so many other places that were like, yeah, we can give you traffic for $3 an install or whatever. So I think in that way, it's changed a lot. But now that I've been rambling at you for a minute, I kind of forget what the question was that you <laughs> You answered the question perfectly. No, no. That, again, it was just like, has the shift in our KPIs made it harder, I guess you could say, for publishers, networks, whoever to actually practice fraud? And it sounds like it has, right? Because if you're held to a higher standard of success, then it says, then it's pretty easy for you to say, all right, well, we tested you as a vendor and you yielded a ton of installs and none of those actually led to revenue for us. So either that was fraud or something weird is happening, but we're not working with you regardless. Right. Exactly. And I think like that sort of like binary assessment is kind of like gone now, right? Because there are so many tools in place that evaluate like the real low hanging fruit, right? So, I mean, like there are no real new ad networks out there that are just like popping up like leveraging all of these old tactics and like making it right because people are going to find you out like immediately you know, it's a small industry people talk people know like what's going on so but i think it's naive for people to think that there isn't some new form of fraud that's being leveraged elsewhere that people aren't thinking about right now because you look back at those days when click injection was brand new or whatever like that was mind-blowing at the time and i mean i'm certain i'm absolutely certain right now that there are forms of fraud going on that nobody in the industry is even thinking about 
but that are just like making boatloads of money like these click injectors did back in the day. So so it's hard to say, but I mean, like you really have to be like evaluating every single day. Like, how should I be looking at this segment of traffic that I don't have a ton of like really new and relevant information about? Like, is you got to put yourself in that kind of seat in the mind of like somebody that's trying to game the system and think about like how they might be doing it. And it's tough because... Yeah, it's just, it's not where a lot of us spend a lot of our time thinking about. So you brought up that it would be, I tend to agree, right? It'd be naive to think that fraud isn't still happening in some way that might be, that we may not be able to see, right? Do you have any kind of thoughts on what that might look like? Have you seen nefarious activity or anything that has come from a source of fraud that you had not before seen? Recently, no. I feel like a lot of the channels that we run on just like, by nature aren't really capable of being exposed to this sort of fraud. But I feel like a lot of the fraud that's happening nowadays is really on the impression level as opposed to the click level. Like the days of gaming, the whole last click attribution system are probably gone. But And performance marketers too, I think, are much less vulnerable just because we do spend so much time evaluating data and like looking at our campaigns and understanding different outliers and whatnot. But I do think like a lot more of this like fraudulent behavior has really turned its aim at like brand advertisers that really aren't as concerned about how what their ROI on a certain campaign is and they're really just worried about reach and how many eyeballs they're getting and that sort of thing. So for me personally, no, I have not really encountered a whole bunch of like really new super shocking forms of fraud. But again, like with the channels that we run at Tilting Point, there's a lot less risk of that. And also we're so glued to the data that I feel like those outliers would be found and eliminated pretty quickly. Yeah, no, I tend to agree with you. The only kind of thing I would say that I might think differently on when it comes to like the brands is, in my opinion, they generally buy higher quality traffic because they're willing to pay premium CPMs and they're willing to buy just different types of ad unit, right? Think rich media and stuff like that, right? That's not something that we generally see performance advertisers buy because it's almost prohibitively expensive, right? So Maybe one could make the argument that because they price themselves so high, they're able to access premium inventory, whereas our problem in the performance space was for a very long time, we weren't thinking necessarily critically enough about how we price out our installs and how that might necessarily affect the publishers we end up showing on, right? If you're only willing to pay $2 for an install, well, that really limits the actual traffic you can buy and and hit that target with which is part of why potentially we saw the emergence of flashlight apps and battery savers and a lot of those apps that are in large ways responsible for a lot of what we've seen. Not a lot, but at least a reasonable chunk of it, right? Right, no doubt. Definitely. Yeah, but I mean, I think there's definitely an argument to be made about that. I just, I don't know, it's interesting. I I don't really have a ton of exposure to brand advertising and what kind of placements they're typically buying, but that's an interesting thought for sure. No, and I still agree with you, though, that there's, we only find out about these things once it's too late. So there's probably something happening, but it's, it's going to be a matter of, who knows, days, months, years before we actually see it. In any case, you've alluded a few times to the fact that Tilting Point uses a number of channels that you would qualify as, as safe, I would say, right? Channels that where fraud necessarily isn't a concern. You mentioned Google and Facebook, which I think are obviously two rather ubiquitous channels that almost every marketer or basically every marketer uses, right? When it comes to moving outside of those, I guess two questions. One, how important is it that you move outside of those? How important is it to your team at least? And two, 
how do you go about electing where you're going to allocate dollars next? I'm sure, again, you have maybe three or four other trusted vendors that come after Facebook, Google, but maybe how did you go about selecting them? And if you add people beyond that, how do you go through that process? The way that you decide how to like where to go next is one to make sure that you're one seeing strong enough profitability from the games that you're running on Facebook and Google, but seeing diminishing returns from scaling those channels up. You've exhausted what kind of geos that you can run and all that sort of stuff. But then making sure that you know where those users are spending their time outside of the core channels, right? So is the next place to go going to be a Snapchat or a Pinterest or some other SAN? Like, are they, or like, what's their age group and demographic? And like, where do they live geographically? Like, these are all things that you can learn from Facebook and Google, right? And then leveraging that information to say, all right, well, I know that like my strongest users are living in the West Coast of the United States and they like to play these kind of other games and whatnot. Or are these users like older women that spend a lot of time on Pinterest and looking at arts and crafts sort of stuff and then expanding on there? And then really it's just kind of applying the same models to those channels to say, is the money in? Is the money going in it's less than the money that's coming out? Right. So I would say it's really just kind of like using the duopolies to just kind of like understand and identify who it is that is actually providing the most value for their game, and then evaluating in the market where are you going to most efficiently be able to buy those eyeballs and, and reach those users. And do you develop your benchmark KPIs through the duopoly of Google and Facebook? Like, or do those allow you guys to determine? What can we afford for an install or what LTV should we expect? Or does that happen? Does that analysis of LTV happen prior to actually launching on places like Facebook and Google? Well, so, I mean, like we usually have a pretty good idea from like soft launches and stuff like what LTVs are going to look like and everything. And I mean, like in terms of like LTV, we kind of have to set some of those benchmarks against like Facebook and Google users. But I mean, like, like benchmarking, say like CPIs and like ROAS and things like that, is it's not really a good measure of success, right? Just because like the bidding structures are different, the audiences are way different, the auctions are so different. But I think you still have to rely on that data to like build your LTV models and stuff. And if I'm being honest, like we rely really, really heavily on our data science team to make those models for us just based on like player behavior and, and more than just like return on ad spend, like how big are the purchases that the users are making are like we also consider things like retention and like engagement with certain pinch points in the app and things like that. But like a lot of those things aren't going to be unique to Facebook and Google. Like we can get a lot of that information from organic users too and apply it to these models the same way. That's awesome. So it sounds like, yeah, most of it happens before. And it sounds like you guys work really closely with your data science team in order to determine kind of what those benchmarks look like as you move on to different vendors and whatnot. But in general, it sounds like fraud and, and a lot of discussion around fraud, like we, we hear about it every conference we go to, right? And we hear about it almost everywhere, right? But it doesn't sound like it's necessarily, at least kind of the impression I get from you is like, it's not necessarily as much of a threat as maybe conferences might make you think, right? We're like, yeah, it definitely exists in some capacity, but the tools are there for us to protect ourselves against it. Not entirely, but, but for the most part. Is that at all accurate? Yeah, I mean, I think that's super accurate. But I mean, like, it's also one of those things, too. It's just like, for people that have been doing this for a while, like you and me, it's like a lot of these things are obvious and no duh. But I mean, like, for a lot of the developers that, like, Tilting Point works with that are very green when it comes to growth marketing and performance marketing just like don't even know that this is a threat so i mean like i think a lot of this content at conferences that that talk about fraud and like how to identify it and stuff it's like it's still very very important information because people are still being 
taken advantage of with a lot of these old tricks. But these are the people that are maybe spending like twenty five to 50000 a month on their campaigns and certainly not like at crazy scales where they have already invested in data science teams and reporting tools and attribution platforms that'll help them out with all of this sort of stuff. So I do think it's important and it is definitely still a risk and it is something that is still happening. But I think like just understanding what to look for and just being educated on like how people do this sort of stuff is definitely important. And like you said before, right, I think the future unfortunately probably holds new forms of fraud that will become evident to us at some point. Outside of that, though, and, and that maybe even just saying like outside of negative future outlook, is there anything looking forward that's got you excited and maybe in your capacity at Tilting Point or just in general as a mobile market or anything that you're looking forward to or any sort of trends that you think are going to become more and more prevalent in the next year to five years you'd like to bring up? There's a lot of stuff. And like if you had asked me this question four years ago, like where is mobile UA going to be in five years, I wouldn't be able to tell you, right? Just because so much has changed. But I think what I think is interesting too, especially with all of this, everybody talks about GDPR and how scary it is. And it, it, like, it is kind of scary, but I mean, like everybody knows why it needs to happen. And there are a lot of bad actors that want to do bad stuff with your data. But because of that, I feel like there's going to be this like shift in the next couple of years towards like a lot of the old models of just like brand endorsements with like YouTube influencers and new sort of like creative formats and stuff that really engage with audiences better. But I think there's going to be a huge shift and a huge importance in just kind of like understanding the user at like a much more like intimate level than like you can really see in data, right? Like, what do they do on the weekend? What's their family like? Where are they spending their free time? So, and like a lot of that, I feel like has already come to fruition. I mean, like influencer marketing has become like such a huge thing just in the last couple of years. And it's not for everybody, but I feel like you know, in a couple of years, it's going to be even bigger than it is right now. And it's only going to continue to grow with how popular like streaming and esports has become. So there's any number of people out there that just love video games and want to be the next PewDiePie so that they can make money playing video games all day. But I think that's only going to continue to grow because I mean, like I, two years ago, was not an esports person at all. I thought it was crazy. Like, why would you want to watch somebody play video games? And I find myself all the time watching like Smash Brothers tournaments and stuff like that online. Now it's just like, it's something that you don't really get. Until that sounds really sick, actually. Yeah. It's, it's cool. But I think it's going to just start appealing to more and more people and that like the influencer thing is really going to take off a lot better. I believe it. Two weeks ago, I was at my oldest brother's bachelor party and it's, we're out in Atlanta on a lake and it, we're having the best time. And all of a sudden, he kind of just like walks away from the group and goes outside onto the porch. And I go out because I'm like, oh, maybe someone's wrong. And I go out and, and he's just out there watching a live stream of Fortnite. And I'm like, dude, what is wrong with you? This is so weird. And he was like, no, you got to watch this. And then like I start watching. I'm like, all right, there's actually this is pretty compelling stuff happening on Fortnite right now. And I want to see this. But yeah, no, that's super cool. <laughs> is it really that different from like catching a... Warriors game out of the corner of your eye at the bar or something and like drifting off to go watch the last, you know? I guess not. It's just like, I think our brands are so naturally associated to like action on sports either means, you know, an action movie or action on TV means either an action movie or, or sports, right? And it always involves humans, but it's just, it just takes some getting used to, but I can definitely see the allure of it. And I can see, like you said, I could see that being just a super valuable channel in the future because it just, you're learning so much about the consumers who would watch something like that. And they're telling you so much about themselves by sheer dint of like being engaged with that content. Right. So I tend to agree with you. In any case, Rockford, this has been 
awesome, super insightful. We genuinely appreciate all your time and consideration. And it's been awesome having you. Thank you so much, man. Thank you for having me, Tommy. It's been a pleasure. All right. Talk to you soon. Again, everyone, you're tuned into Activate. We had Rockford Yap from Tilting Point, Director of Growth Marketing on the line with us today. I'm Tommy. Thanks for tuning in.